Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. This episode includes discussion of suicide. If you or someone you know is in crisis, there are options available to help you cope. You can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at any time to speak with someone and get confidential support. The number is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. This is a Vault Studios production. After news broke that Nanette Krentel's death was no accident, that the fire chief's wife had been shot before her home burned down around her, friends and family started to rethink her final moments. If Nanette didn't die in the fire, then when exactly was she shot? That afternoon? That morning? Was it even the same day? What did her final moments look like? And what clues about who killed her might be hidden in that timeline. For Vault Studios and WWL-TV, I'm Katie Moore. This is Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe. Following Nanette's funeral... When the dust settled and some of the chaos subsided, her father, Dan Watson, was left thinking about his very first meeting with investigators. A few days after he and other members of the family had driven down to Lacombe from the Midwest. At that meeting, Dan says detectives mentioned some surveillance footage, possibly of Nanette, from the morning of the day she was found dead. Sheriff said they had a video from McDonald's that Steve had gotten, and he had found it on Nanette's debit card and went out and got the camera anyway, or the film, and the sheriff had it. And then one of the people with the sheriff told us, we showed Steve the video, Mm -hmm. but we couldn't see it. And so we asked why. Why could Steve see it? And the answer was that they wanted Steve to identify the watch on Nanette's hand as she reached out of the vehicle. Some family members have expressed doubts about the McDonald's video, suggesting it doesn't prove Nanette was actually alive that morning that she could have been killed the night before when her friend Lori Rando says she suddenly stopped responding in the middle of a Facebook conversation. And some say it could be somebody else in that video driving her car and using her credit card to buy breakfast. The sheriff's office says Nanette's cell phone was traced to that location as well. But for months after the fire, Steve is the only person close to Nanette who's allowed to view the footage, fueling the family's suspicions. 
all they have to go on during this stretch of time is what the sheriff's office and Steve say the video shows. So that really raised a red flag. Why did you one lie to us and then why why did he show Steve preferential treatment? What they would later learn is that it's grainy footage taken from a nearby Walgreens, making it difficult to see, let alone identify any specific pieces of jewelry. After that grainy footage was captured, the St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office says Nanette returned home. They also say they know she returned home shortly after 9 a.m. by herself with no one following her, but they wouldn't disclose any further as to how they know that. Detectives would eventually tell the family they had surveillance footage from a property on Philip Smith Road, the dead-end road where the Krentals lived, showing the vehicle headed back to the house at 9.11 a.m. When I drove out to the Krentals' property last year, I looked around on Philip Smith Road to see if maybe I could spot the camera that detectives say captured Nanette's vehicle and talk through some of the evidence with my colleague, WWL-TV photographer Derek Waldrop. There's a security camera somewhere on this road that captured Nanette coming back to the property at 9.11 a.m. the morning she died. I think that camera is on a business or is on somebody else's house. And it sounds like that camera was motion activated. So it would only go off whenever it sensed something was moving around it, which makes me think it's on somebody's house. Um, Apparently there's a tree branch that's in the path of the motion sensor. And so that camera regularly goes off but only records portions of things happening because it only records for a certain period of time. So they did get one little bit of video of Nanette coming home. I don't believe investigators have video of her leaving for McDonald's that morning. In that video, they said no one pulled in the road behind her. Perhaps not too surprisingly, the security camera we're looking for isn't in plain view, at least not as far as we can tell. So after driving up and down Philip Smith Road, we decide to backtrack, heading toward the second to last place investigators say Nanette's vehicle was spotted. That McDonald's in the city of Slidell, about a 15 or 20 minute drive from the Krentel residence. And again, as we're driving the route investigators suggest Nanette would have driven, we walk through the timeline and some of the evidence they've put forward. The sheriff's office has grainy video from a nearby Walgreens of Nanette's car, at least that's what they believe is Nanette's car, ordering at the drive-thru at McDonald's. The sheriff has refused to release that to the media to let other people see it to see if it would generate any leads, which is one of the frustrations of the family. In that video, it's grainy, it's unclear who it is in the car. So it could have been someone else in Nanette's car using Nanette's credit card. Um, And some of the family members speculate that she may have been killed the night before and that somebody else took her car to McDonald's. Now others, including the sheriff and his detectives, The sheriff's detective said that this was something that Nanette regularly ordered, that she would regularly order an an egg white sandwich from McDonald's. So it was a common order for Nanette. It wasn't something that um, was unusual for her to buy, which makes the sheriff's office believe that it was in fact Nanette in that car and that she was alive 
day of the fire. Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. According to the St. Tammany Sheriff, 9-11 a.m. is the last time Nanette's SUV was seen on camera prior to the fire. And as far as we know, Nanette herself was never seen alive after that point either. But at 10.03 a.m., Just an hour after the sheriff's office says Nanette returned home, phone records provided by family members show an outgoing call from Nanette's phone to a Kmart about a prescription refill. Investigators say there's only one other call after that, an outgoing call to a local number, sometime around 1.30 p.m. Detectives have since told the family they've been in touch with the individual that local number belongs to. Roughly an hour before the 911 call was the last phone call from her phone. Uh, And it was to an individual, local individual, who I sat down with and spoke to. The call went unanswered. And detectives say Nanette did not leave a voicemail. It was, as far as they can tell, a misdial. And she says it has to be a misdial. I don't know Nan, never know Nan. Didn't know Steve, didn't know anybody. Whatever the case, it's only about an hour later, at 2.30 p.m., that a neighbor's child notices smoke coming from the property while out riding a bike and calls 911. That's when Steve Krennel is dispatched to the scene and picked up on that tattletale camera footage inside of his department vehicle. Throughout the morning and early afternoon, before he was dispatched to his own home, Steve went into work had lunch at an Outback Steakhouse, and then returned to the fire department. All of it amounts to an alibi the sheriff's office says checks out, one that's backed up by witness accounts and location data from his cell phone. And what about those family members Nanette said she was afraid of? Well, investigators say her son-in-law, Justin, was out of state, and that Steve's brother, Brian Krentel, had a solid alibi, too. Throughout the day of the fire, Brian was captured on surveillance cameras at his mother's home in the neighboring city of Mandeville, at least according to the timestamps on the footage. Dan Watson says Steve had installed those cameras himself after Brian moved in out of a concern for his parents' safety. That detail, that Steve was the one who installed the cameras, is something that would stick with some of Nanette's family members in the months and years to come. Despite some of their questions and concerns, the St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office has, as you've already heard, cleared Steve as a suspect. And the family says they were told Brian was cleared as well, but we have never heard that officially from law enforcement. 
There was another theory sheriff's investigators were apparently considering and had been since the earliest days of the investigation. Nanette's sister, Amy Bernard, says investigators were talking about the possibility that Nanette was the one who set the fire, then pulled the trigger, that she had taken her own life. It's a theory other family members heard from investigators as well. One Amy says she first heard from Steve shortly after the funeral. And when I found out, we had a meeting that night, a family meeting, um, on my mom's side. And we had some some family in that was going to leave. So we went and had a private room and we had a meeting and discussed some things. And when um, we went, it was at a restaurant, we went up, we're walking up, my brother was on the phone with Steve. And um, when he came into the restaurant, we were, like I said, in a private room, um, he said that Steve had told him that they were talking about suicide at that point. Nanette's sister, Wendy Watson, was also at that dinner. My brother came back in and said that Steve was at the sheriff's office and that they were leaning towards suicide. So I knew that we had to, like, put something in place. So I called Nan's dad and was like, we need to do something because there's no way. And he agreed with me. He said Nan would have never done that. And I said, I know. I know she wouldn't have done that. So I, I said, you know, how do they know that? And it's a week into this and not talking to any of us that were at the scene. Um, or anybody, you know, like it was just a week um, into it. So I didn't know if he was mistaken or what have you. And then all of this started spiraling and we were still never called in. Amy says instead of waiting any longer for investigators to interview them, she and some of the other family members finally just asked to go in and share what information they had. This was also one of their first chances to ask some of their burning questions about how the investigation had been handled up to this point. And as time would tell, it's one of the few opportunities they would ever have to ask investigators questions face-to-face. So we asked to go in um, about a month later. And we I thought we would talk to the sheriff, but we didn't. We were talking... Um, There was a major that we talked to. Amy says she asked specifically about the scene being released so quickly after the fire. I asked him why the scene was let go, because I found at the family meeting that it had been let go within hours, you know, of the fire. And not days, just even a matter of hours, probably. And um, so I thought, well, that is just disheartening. You know, because you know that as soon as anyone's let on that scene, not saying anything was tampered with by them or whatever, but I wouldn't have wanted to go on the scene, and that's my sister. I would have, if I had the authority, I would have made sure that it was, that nobody went on it and said, please investigate this. Something's wrong here. But that was not my call. Remember, the scene had been released to Steve Krentel the day after the fire, then re-secured by the sheriff's office five days later. And we were told by that major that um, Stephen's civil rights would have been violated if they had held the scene, that they could just not hold a scene like that until they found out she was shot. Then they took the scene back, and um, he said they sifted through the entire scene. And I thanked him for that in the men, and I do, and I know they worked hard, but I said after it had been let go, it was compromised. I said, and I don't really think, maybe it's the law. I said, what about my sister's rights to have 
her scene looked at properly. Even though she's deceased, I felt like she should have had a proper diagnosis of the whole scene, no matter how long that took. Yeah, and it's like, well, what are you doing? And they really didn't come up with anything. They didn't, they didn't have an answer for why this, uh, the fire scene wasn't secured. They, they were claimed to be in some kind of dispute with the fire marshal over who had uh, responsibility to do what, when. Um, it, it just, things just were not adding up. As you've previously heard during the sheriff's investigators' initial sweep of the scene, before it was released, they had discovered two of the 30 guns Steve says the couple kept at the house. But it's during the window of time after the scene was released that investigators would realize neither of the weapons they had collected were a match for the type of gun used to shoot Nanette. In other words, they'd released a scene that might still hold the gun used to kill her. So the fire marshal and the sheriff's office resecured the scene five days later to search for the matching gun. And only then did they find Nanette's 40 caliber Springfield handgun, which Nanette's sister Kim Watson says Nanette would regularly carry in her purse. I don't think she ever in her mind thought someone might try to kill me because she's, she had her Springfield in her purse. That was when her and Steve both got matching. And so she told dad, you know, this one goes with me always. I'm always, I'm always safe. Detectives have told the family the Springfield cannot be ruled out as the gun used to kill her. But that's about as much information as they've been willing to give about the weapon. That brings us back to the gunshot wound itself what it might tell us about who pulled the trigger and when investigators would have found out about it in the first place. I've since obtained a summary of the St. Tammany Parish Coroner's initial autopsy report, the report that first noted Nanette had died from a gunshot wound to the head. Importantly, this report lists the manner of death as a homicide. Something else that sticks out about this summary is the date and time, July 15th, 2017, at 9 a.m., the morning after Nanette was found dead. You, you don't want to spend a lot of time, you know, disturbing the remains. Mm -hmm. You want to basically get those in the hands of, of a professional as quickly as you can. I asked Doug Johnson, a longtime homicide investigator, who would end up looking into this case later on, at what point the pathologist conducting the autopsy would have been likely to discover the gunshot wound. And they would have found that at autopsy. Usually one of the first things they do, one of the first things they do is x-ray. If that's the case, the coroner and the sheriff's office would have known about the gunshot wound shortly after the autopsy began on the morning of the 15th, a full six days before the family would hear about it. Dan Watson says they didn't mention anything about a gunshot wound when he went to the coroner's office in person the Monday after the fire to provide a DNA sample, two days after that initial autopsy. No, they gave no information. Because the autopsy was done Saturday morning. Yes. So they clearly knew that she had died of a gunshot wound. Yes. 
and they said nothing about it. Nothing. What does that, what do you think about that? Now well, I thought it then. was <laughs> suspicious because, and of course I, I'm comparing it to the way things are handled here. Mm-hmm. It would have been on the news by that time. The family would have been notified and then it would have hit the news media. That's the way it's handled here. I asked Doug Johnson if it's typical for information like that to be kept from the family for up to a week. Well, it depends. Um, There are certain aspects of investigations you don't want to release. Uh, You don't want it out in the public. So some of that may be guarded. The other side of that is complete disclosure with the family. How much do you tell somebody? And it it, kind of revolves around when they quit asking questions. When they get to the point where they know enough, Mm -hmm. and you know, some people want to know more, some want to know less. And I think a a situation like this, perhaps not get into detail, but, and again, I don't know their departmental policies or their procedure, but if that was a situation up here, we would probably inform the family that victim of a homicide. I would think that's a pretty key detail. Right. that the family would want to know? Well, we just uh, start off with, you know, we have reason to believe that basically someone took her life or that she, this was a result of a homicide. And that may facilitate more conversation and you may not want to answer all the questions because you don't want everything out there. Right. But I think most people also understand that. Dan says it wasn't just the coroner the family met with during this window of time between the fire and the memorial service. Set up a meeting with the coroner, the sheriff's department, and the fire marshal. Did you meet with all those people before the memorial service? Yes. And none of them mentioned the gunshot wound? No, none of them mentioned it. Again, it's right after they learn about the gunshot wound that the family says they got wind investigators were, in Dan's words, pushing suicide. Amy says when she visited the sheriff's office in person about a month after the fire, they went so far as to tell her they were close to wrapping things up. That they were pretty close to wrapping things up. And that we may not like their answer. Didn't say what that would be but that we were welcome to challenge it in whatever capacity that meant, Um, but that no one's ever challenged the sheriff's office and um, turned over their their findings and proved them. And what did that say to you that they were thinking? I was thinking that this was way too soon, after especially not talking to any of us at the scene, to make that decision, and that um, things just were not adding up. Some of Nanette's family members still worry that investigators' early suspicion that Nanette took her own life may have kept them off the trail of her killer. And they've been adamant since the beginning that Nanette would not and did not kill herself or intentionally harm her animals. Never 
Oh my gosh, never. Was Nanette depressed? No, not at all. There's no way that she would have ever shot herself. I said, I'll put my hand on the Bible. I, I know her like the back of my hand. And I know that she would never shoot herself. And she would have never left us on the earth to have to wonder and have to suffer like this ever. We've had enough heartache in our family and enough secrets and enough betrayal that she would never do that to us. Speaking about the suggestion that her sister may have taken her own life, Amy Bernard points back to her sister Nanette's final moments, at least as they've been laid out by the sheriff's office. So she went to McDonald's and she came home, let's say about, I don't know the exact time, she ordered a prescription from Kmart those are not normal things. I realize it maybe could happen, but that you would do that morning and then all of a sudden go home and decide you're going to do all this. Grabbing a bite to eat at McDonald's, calling to have a prescription refilled. What Amy is suggesting is that these actions don't suggest anything was out of the ordinary. She was doing all the normal stuff. I told him early on, I think... She got home, could be totally wrong, but someone on that property ambushed her and was waiting for her because it was a normal thing she did. WWL-TV has since learned from sources close to the investigation that five high-ranking members of the sheriff's office went so far as to meet with St. Tammany coroner Charles Preston in the weeks after Nanette's murder to make their case that Nanette killed herself even though Preston's office had already made its initial determination that Nanette's manner of death was homicide. The sheriff himself was pushing suicide. To you directly? Did Sheriff Smith directly insinuate to you that he thought yes. this was a suicide, that yeah. Nanette had killed herself? To, to myself, Randy and Kim were also there, but we all three heard him say suicide. But Dan says he didn't give a solid reason about why he thought this was a suicide. The coroner and the sheriff have both defended their office's work on the case, and both would later make public statements to that effect. Statements we'll be able to share with more context later on. For now, when the Watsons return home to Iowa from Louisiana, they see a need to seek out every avenue available to them even contacting the office of one of their U.S. senators, Chuck Grassley, at the time chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so we called him, figuring, I don't trust anybody down there in position, uh, almost any position. And I knew the sheriff pretty much was going to control things, and we were trying our best to get the FBI involved. And, you know, they kept saying it's not our jurisdiction. So we do go to Grassley. Senator Grassley was very helpful. I mean, at least he sat down, <laughs> listened to us, and did whatever he could. And we continued to keep in touch with him. Dan says they also contacted the Iowa Attorney General's office, who called down to the St. Tammany Parish Sheriff's Office on the family's behalf. They got no information. They... They got nowhere, so I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere with them. They assigned us a family uh, representative, uh, 
who worked with families uh, of murder victims. Mm -hmm. And he's a retired sergeant in the local police force. And he called down there. And Mark is very outspoken and aggressive. And uh, he basically talked to them for quite a while, telling them what to do. And they didn't listen to him either. I wasn't real sure what we were going to do at that point until we had heard that the sheriff was going to call it suicide. Fearing that a declaration of suicide by the sheriff's office would allow for Nanette to be cremated, the Watsons hire an attorney to get a court order to preserve her remains. That's when Randy and I were scrambling around trying to get a copy of the court order because they had um, texted us saying they were getting no cooperation. They couldn't, they couldn't see the remains. They couldn't see anything. The St. Tammany Parish coroner would later say that was unnecessary and that Steve Krentel, the legal next of kin, had agreed to further examination of her remains. But whatever the case, this paved the way for another autopsy, one conducted by a pathologist the Watsons would hire. Next time on Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe. Think of like six blind men and an elephant. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't see everything, you get a wrong impression. So, you know, the six blind men with the elephant, one thought it's a tree, one thought it's a snake, one thing it's a rope, one thought it was a wall. Mm -hmm. um, if you can see everything, you get a much more complete picture. That would involve in seeing everything had been done so far. When you do an autopsy, you should document things. Doing a second autopsy at that point, much had been changed and lost. Beyond Bardstown, Lacombe is a Vault Studios and WWL-TV production. You can learn more about our podcasts, including the Daily Crime and True Crime Chronicles at vaultstudios.com. Special thanks to WWL-TV News Director Keith Esperos and visual journalist Derek Waldrop. Vault Studios executive producers are Brian Weiss and Will Johnson. Reed Redmond is our writer and producer. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. If you or someone you know is in crisis, there are options available to help you cope. You can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at any time to speak with someone and get support. For confidential support available 24-7 for everyone in the United States, call 1-800-273-TALK. That's one 800 273-8255. For Vault Studios, I'm Katie Moore.